And there's a great article by um, John Philip Sousa, 1900s, late 1800s, maybe it was when the gramophone was invented. And he wrote down his fear of this instrument changing music from it being an active pursuit for everybody to becoming a passive pursuit because people would go and, and they would sing, but now they are hearing the same recording over and over again. They're not going to attend live music. They're not going to see it as an active thing. It's going to be perfection because it's going to be recorded till it's right. It all started to change at that point in time. And it's just continually changing into this elite mentality because listen to recordings, whether any, anything, if you listen to a choir recording, it's been edited most of the time. Listen to acapella, it's heavily edited. So then your group can't sound like that. So you get as close as you can with the best singers you can. I believe there's a way to make it for everyone and make it great. It's going to provide the opportunity for the kid that wants to be on Broadway, that's talented enough to get there. But they're going to also learn how to give back and get the average singers and the weaker singers to also excel and pursue a lifelong love of music where they will be singing and they will be coming to choir concerts and they will be going to Broadway shows. That's our goal. That's really our goal is to keep them active, actively singing and actively in the audience. Welcome to The Choir Baton, a podcast designed to engage with people and stories, ideas, and inspirations stemming from choir. No other art form, no sport, no hobby, no business requires a group of people to execute a communal goal with just their voices. Join me, your host, Beth Philemon, as I interview guests who are singers, teacher conductors, instrumentalists, and community members. Together, we'll ask questions, seek understanding, and share insight from our experiences in life and in choir. Perfect. Woo! I IPA'd it before we... I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, But Adam is a popular and growing name in our industry of choral music online content, I guess you could kind of say, right? Sure. Um, you might know him through his incredibly popular blog, Coral Clarity. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I was just sharing with Adam, you know, I have kind of watched the blog over the years, I guess, because when did you start it? A little over three years ago now. Okay. Awesome. And I, I really, I value the titles that you post your content under because, um, I know that's hard from firsthand experience, but there it, you also want it to be something that people will want to click on and read, but you also um, do a great job of being relevant without being clickbaity. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for the compliment. Yeah, definitely. But I was listening to an interview that our Coralosophy friend, Chris Muntz, just did with him, and I literally in the middle of the interview, listening to Adam's story, and I'm like, I've got to get him on Choir Baton. Um, it's awesome. Yeah. And so here we are a couple days later. Um, Adam, I know you talk about this in Chris's podcast and I'm sure it's, oh, I know it's on parts of your website, but would you tell us a little bit about how you came to choir? And I love that, like, yeah, kind of an unconventional way, if you will. Yeah, sure. Um, I'd be happy to. So I did not sing in middle school or elementary school or high school. 
Um, I needed to be in music. I played the piano since I was three years old, pretty much. Um, took lessons at about five. Uh, played a lot by ear. Took lessons, um, but didn't take my lessons so seriously because um, I just liked the songs on the radio. I would play them. Um, that was that was my strength. Um, and but I loved music. I knew I loved music. I was at the piano all, all day long. Um, when I hit the high school age, I needed to be in music. So I joined the orchestra as a piano player. And the orchestra had 12 students in it. It was three high schools combined. And, um, you know, I just kind of played whatever everybody else was playing. Yeah. And um, I was not a really strong piano player. I was an okay piano player. And then I did that for two years. In my junior year, I became friendly with the choir teacher who allowed me to join the mixed choir, which was the top group, and play the piano. Never sang a note for the entire year, just accompanied. And it was hard work for me because, you know, I was not a fine player. I really, really had to practice to, to get the music down. Yeah. But because I had a good ear, I could help with the warm-ups. I could help for the talent show. I could play all the songs that all the girls wanted to sing. Um, <laughs> now, I mean, what was this like? Like, I mean, had you been around choirs before or was this real? You're like, what is this world? Yeah, it was more like it was a great social place. It was a place where there were a lot of girls. They were <laughs> accepting. And so I, I felt really I felt at home, yeah. except if I had to sing. And so there was never a discussion of me singing I was never asked to sing. Um, in the meantime, but for the record, I don't know if I talked about this at all, but I had a girlfriend in ninth and 10th grade, and she took private voice lessons um, with a pop teacher. Yeah. And so I started taking lessons also. So I was taking some voice lessons outside of school, okay. but I was not a good singer. I was not talented. I wasn't, I wasn't, let's just say I wasn't progressing the way I should be. Okay. Um, so I have and, a question that, like, yeah. what do you, what do you mean by not a good singer? Like, because we all qualify yeah. it differently. Well, I'm going to start with the premise. I'm going to blame my parents a little bit and I'm sure they're going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so my parents didn't tune my old piano very much. Mm -hmm. And by the time I was in high school, I had a broken C and F key. And so I would be learning songs off the radio and I'd be playing them in the wrong key. So I think my singing was always a little out of tune because the piano that I played at all the time yeah. was out of tune. I think so. They're going to be so mad at me. I, can we edit this out? No. <laughs> um, but, I'm like sitting here going like, I've really got to go tune my piano. <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, it was an old piano. I, and they, you know, they really supported me right. with music and yeah. all that stuff. But, but, that, but it makes I sense. Yeah, exactly. So, but it, it was out of tune and I sing out, I sing flat. I didn't support, I didn't have good breath support. I didn't have good placement. I didn't understand falsetto, mm. you know, all this stuff. So I was just kind of belting away, belting Billy Joel, not well, but you know, well enough that I could sort of get by. Yeah. Um, that's all I can do. And I was very insecure. I wasn't insecure with my own pop songs mm -hmm. so much. Um, but I was insecure and I would never have sung in the choir. I would have been mortified if somebody heard me sing in that mm -hmm. setting. I mean, mortified. Um, and then senior year, I had a new choir teacher who was experienced. He came from another school. He came in and there was one time that I sang. It was because we were doing, um, the Billy Joel, um, 
River of Dreams, and I wanted to audition for that solo at the piano, and he let me, and he was like, I was done in two minutes, and he just moved on. Um, you know, there was no chance I was getting that solo. Yeah. Um, so that was the only time I sang in high school. I was not singing in the choir. I played the piano, mm-hmm. and I took pride in playing the piano. That was my role. That's what I did. I, and um, then I got to college, and I had to sing in a choir, and I sang in this big choir where nobody knew my name, nobody knew anything, and they couldn't hear me. It was totally fine. I got away with it for you know two or three semesters, um, and I accompanied for most of, not most, but a lot of the voice lessons at the school. So I was getting paid by the voice students, really music ed voice students, um, and some musical theater students to accompany them at their voice lessons. So I was observing all different voice teachers and learning um, that way, as as well as learning for two years in high school when I was watching two different choir teachers teach. I was learning a lot about what to do and what not to do. Um, and I was using my ears. I just wasn't singing, but I was observing. So that was my that was my starting point. And obviously I've got a lot more vocal training since then, but I'm still not a singer. I would not pay to hear me sing. Um, I'm not, you know, my wife is a singer. She's a professional singer for a living. So she's a real singer. I, I'm somebody that understands how to sing. I can teach, I could demonstrate whatever it is I want somebody else to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I call myself a vocal technician because I really do focus on vocal technique, mm-hmm. building voices. Right. Um, but I'm not, I'm not a fine singer. Yeah. So that's kind of my background there. It's so, it's okay. I have, I'm so interesting to me and I, and I love, I love that story. I, there's so many things. So my first question then is as an educator, when a kid comes to you and says, I'm not a singer, what, how do you respond? Uh, usually I explain that everybody's a singer. You know, I'm here to teach you how to learn how to sing. If you could speak, you could sing. Right. Um, that's why all those articles that have come out where 5% of the population is tone deaf. This stuff is such nonsense, right. you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, right away I can, t- if they let me, work with them for five minutes, I can get anybody to sing. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, when I'm saying singing, I'm not saying that, you know, they're going to be singing at the Met in five minutes, right. but they're going to be matching pitch. They're going to be able to sing five notes within a range. Um, they're going to be able to to understand the difference between pitches. I've never had a student that couldn't get that yeah. concept. So the first goal is to just tap into that. Yeah. Can I Can I connect with them enough that they're willing to trust me? Oops. Oh, I just lost you. That they can uh, feel good about themselves. Yeah. Oop, I just lost you there for a second. Okay. So it said that uh, you were talking about if you can connect with them enough to have them trust you, you can build them to be a singer. And I completely agree. Um, but then do they ever hear you say, I'm not a good singer? And then yeah. they... Sure. Okay. Oh yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm very open. The way I speak on a, uh, on a podcast is the way I speak to my students. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not a strong singer. I, I, I explained to them um, that a good portion of the students in my room are going to be better musicians than I am. Mm-hmm. I have more experience than them. So I can offer everybody something, but that doesn't mean that they're not internally better musicians they could have a better instrument they could you know they they could have just better nuances to their musicianship right um 
so so if I'm not intimidated by that, then I can really share my story with them and still gain their respect right. um, as an experienced musician. Mm-hmm. And and that's really that's really the approach that I take. I I don't want them to think that I'm an amazing singer. <laughs> I mean, I want them to to understand that I that I can help them get better because it's not about me. It's about them and right. their growth. Right, right. I just was wondering, like, from that example, setting an example standpoint, like, oh, Mr. Pashwood says he's not a good singer, so like, I'm not a good singer either. Like, if he doesn't think he's a good singer, then I, there's definitely no way I could be one. It's funny. I I do hear comments like that from time to time from really strong singers, you yeah. know. And I'll say, you know, I'm not a strong singer because I'm flat. I'm not a strong singer, be- you know. I know all these things. My support is not is not great. Um, I mean, it's fine at my age now. I've been doing it, but it's still not. I mean, but these students, I'm I'm coaching them. I'm showing them again. That that comes back to self assessment. When we start wor- working tangibly on things that they're doing well, they start to see it um, on paper, right. and they really start to believe in themselves. So they see, oh wait, I can do this. I can do that. Then they start to gain the confidence. It's really no longer my story. My story is an entryway into saying anybody can learn how to sing and everybody is welcome here. And our choir is successful because everybody's motivated, not because everybody's a great singer when they come in. I love that. I love that. Yeah, no, I understand completely what you're saying. I I think it's so interesting. We oftentimes would qualify our goodness by some of those things of like breath support and intonation. And yes, all of that makes good singers. But then I also really like, I also have seen great singers. Like I would call you a great singer, although I've never heard you sing. But if you know when you're having bad support or you know when you're flat or you know this and that and the other, then like heavens, I'd rather have a singer that knows that than a singer that doesn't in certain regards. And it matters different types of ensembles and things. Sure. Yeah. So how then you're in college, you are a part of this big choir. Where is the transition point to use the buzzword? When do you pivot into becoming a choral music educator? I knew I was going to be a choral music educator by my, the end of my senior year of of high school. I knew that was what I wanted to do Um, because I felt like I had that, that vantage point sitting at the piano for two years of the choir, helping everybody learn their parts, helping them, you know, hearing which parts were missing, thinking about articulation, seeing if I could come up with what was wrong before the choir director did, accompanying for the talent show and for all the different events and the graduation or whatever, all those different things I did. So I knew that that was where my calling was. I just didn't know what my skill level was. so one of the things I did was I, I took uh, the choral methods class that was offered at, at my college and I connected with the teacher and I ended up taking it every year and accompanying for him for free just so I can watch um, that experience. Um, then I begged, I mean begged the best choir director on Long Island where I, I grew up, uh, which is far away from my college, like a good 40 miles outside of my college. I begged him to allow me to student teach with him. I heard about his choir and he let me student teach with him. And then I found a top-notch voice teacher who was connected to that choir director. And I started studying with him. 
so and then I started to get politically involved too with you know all the top choir directors asking questions and learning from them and observing and by the way not just choir directors band directors orchestra directors um, anybody that was really really fine and successful mm-hmm. I wanted to be around because I wanted to see what a successful director did how they created a, a positive atmosphere how they inspired others that was my that's what I thought would be my strength and um, and so I really felt prepared when I came out of college. The only thing that I was afraid of was being exposed as a weak singer. I was fearful of that. I wasn't fearful of my piano playing, which was good enough because there are a lot of great vocalists who can't play the piano at all. So I knew that in, in the realm in the realm of of choral directors, I was probably on the on the better side. Yeah. Um, I thought singing wise, I was on, on the low end conducting wise. I thought I was okay. Um, but I thought that my rehearsal technique was going to be really strong. My ability to pull people in time management, um, having a goal, knowing where to start, how to impact change and how to connect with people. I thought that was going to be strong. So I wasn't really that worried about it. Um, so that's kind of sort of how I made the pivot. Yeah. I love that. It's, I can just see your brain and how smart you are and your approach to this. Yeah. And uh, I love that kind of thinking. And it's so important for people to hear that I believe, and it seems like you do as well, we can be effective choral conductors and it really comes down to strategy. Yep. Well said. Strategy, because we can teach anything. If we're a great teacher, we can teach anything if it's some you know if it's something that i know i can teach it because it's the same concept music is something that i love that i feel comfortable with so it's it's you know i love what i do but i i can i can teach other subjects too not academic subjects for the record non-academic subjects um and i could teach them equally well because i'm passionate about them and i'm excited it's a hobby it's something that that i enjoy and then i can sit down and break things down and explain them with passion and and motivate people it's it's all the same to me yeah yeah that's so awesome so when you get to your school the first your first teaching gig did you feel as prepared as you felt you were prepared or were there other holes that you weren't expecting? Yes. Great question. Well, first of all, let me just give you a background of my actual teaching. So I, in my junior year of college, I, gra- I graduated one semester early from okay. college and I, I went to NYU, New York University in, the, in, in Manhattan. When I was a junior in college, second semester, I was contacted um, that they had an opening to teach high school in the city. And so I was 20 years old. I taught three days a week, a total of, I want to say, four hours. And I taught chorus and general music to juniors and seniors in high school that needed one requirement. Um, That didn't go so well. That's a tough gig. That's a tough crowd. It was a tough crowd. They didn't want to be there. It was crammed together to meet a requirement. It was a brand new school. It was Mm -hmm. in their third, fourth year of existence. So the seniors were the first group that were to, to go through the program. So that was not a great gig. Then I graduated college in December and I started teaching in January. I taught at a middle school from January to June. And um, long story short, because there were twists and turns that got me here, there was a um, it was a requirement um, to be in the chorus, band or orchestra in sixth, seventh and eighth grade. Wow. Um, 
And so if you weren't in band or orchestra, you were in chorus. There were some kids that doubled up, but for the most part, it was one or the other. And so the sixth grade had everybody in it. And so it was a non-select thing. The seventh and eighth grade chorus was an elite group of about 80 students. Mm-hmm. And then there were choruses throughout the day of every student that was not elite or got kicked out of band or orchestra for misbehaving. Right. There were two chorus teachers. One chorus teacher had the seventh and eighth grade select group of 80 and then there students. there was you. And then there was me who had every student that was not in the select chorus. Um, and I didn't have the sixth grade. He had the theater system. Of course, right. <laughs> so it didn't go very well. Yeah. Um, it was hard. Um, so then I got to, to play and view where I am. And then my first year I taught kindergarten. I taught uh, nine, nine classes a week of 40 minutes, three periods a day. So it was like nine to 12 three 40-minute periods, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And the rest of the time, I was in the high school, and I taught a freshman group that met every day and a freshman group that met every other day. I had rotating lessons, and then I had a select group at night of 20 kids that were like juniors and seniors, like a select vocal jazz-type group. And so focusing, the kindergarten class went great overall. My ninth-grade group did not go very well. And... Again, I, they sounded fine. There was no problem with the sound. They were well-prepared, but the class was out of control. Mm-hmm. And I did not know how to do anything. And then somebody recommended the book, uh, First Days of School by Harry Wong. Yes, yeah. And that book on my own changed my the way I taught high school. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the core of a lot of the positive learning environment stuff that I talk about. Of course, modified over time to, to be more effective for high school and more effective for the environment that I think needs to happen. Um, but it taught me about rules and consequences and, and procedures and all of these different things. And once I got that into place, which nobody talked about, they didn't talk about it in high in, in college. Interesting. It, I was told don't smile until November. Right. Um, when I was hired in Plainview, the director of music at the time, or wasn't a director, it was a chairperson. And it was a long time ago. Um, told me, you know, he's, I did a demo lesson and, my demo lesson was successful, which is why I got the job. He said, just start like that. You were so successful. Just start like that. That didn't work out so well because I was, I was, you know, I pulled out the bells and whistles. I didn't lay down the expectations. I didn't teach them how they should sit and, and what they do if they have to go to the bathroom and what they do if they have a question and, you know, why we sing and all of the things right. that I think are important. So that, that that was my glaring weakness. And that's what I honed in over the four, first, I want to say, three to four years. And then again for the next five or six years, I'd say the last 10 to 12 years, I've really gotten it down where it's yeah. it's the students come in knowing what to expect. And, and um, I know what I'm doing but from that end now. Yeah, yeah. And that culture pervades yeah. and precedes exactly fully. when students come in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think hearing that makes it, – it doesn't surprise me. And I'm going to say it doesn't like, – that that was your weakness. It's I'm not saying that doesn't surprise me because <laughs> when I first met you, I was really <laughs> like, he's weak on procedures. <laughs> But I think it's a testament to what you are providing our community by the resources available on your website. You know, you're like, 
hey, man, you're not saying this directly, or maybe you are, and I just have missed it on your post, but like, this is hard, and you're not always taught these things, and this is what you need to know. So I think it's so cool that you are showing up for our community by giving this resource to people. Thank you, because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to fill in the blanks. I'm trying to fill in what's missing, and that's what I'm writing. I'm writing a blog about what's not being discussed. Right. And, you know, that doesn't mean there isn't, some fantastic choral director or, or, or methods teacher at the college level that's doing it. But as a whole, I know that that's not happening. And I know it because a lot of college directors are asking me for permission to use my blog posts. Right. Right. Which, which is awesome. Yeah. I love that. I, you know, my answer is always yes. Whatever I can say yes to, I will. And they're at there and I credit them. They're coming and saying, Hey, this is fascinating information. Can I present it? And it can be simple things like how to find music, uh, you know, how to search for choral music, right. something like that. Um, it's, this is stuff that's taken me years to figure out mm-hmm. and, um, how, what, what to do when the kids aren't responding or how do you make, um, a, a rehearsal more effective? How do you keep something flowing? How do you engage everybody in the room? How do you set everybody up to succeed? How do you set up a program where students are all able to earn a hundred if they work hard without watering it down? You know, like all of these kinds of things that I don't think are talked about. What's talked about is how do you get a good choral sound? How do you do a good warm up? Um, how, you know, uh, what's the good start how do you incorporate the um the the song that you're doing into the warm-up so the kids are engaged into that song you know like things like they're not that they're not useful they are but they're only useful once the students are paying attention once they're bought in once they're focused once they're singing out once they're not afraid of making mistakes amen yeah amen like it's so It's so true because there is not enough of that happening. And what I have found and feel, and I'm curious if if you've had a similar experience, is that because we are not being intentional in how we are addressing some of those things, we, our teachers aren't doing them and we're losing more students. Yes. Oh yeah, completely. We're losing, we're losing so many students. And then the whole select stuff that I talked about briefly um, with with Chris also um, about, uh, you know, these groups, they, you know, choral directors generally have a select group that gets everything that does everything that gets everything. And what happens to every student that doesn't make it into that group? Um, They're gone. They're somehow gone. Um, they rarely continue for four years if they're not if they don't make it into the select group. Maybe they make it. Maybe they all start in their freshman year, and then they, a few continue into their sophomore year um, into some herded chorus, and they never make it past two years. Um, so what happens to all those students? They stop singing. They realize they're not talented. They stop singing. They're done. They're no longer patrons of the arts. They're no longer joining community choruses. They're no longer. Um, learning about music, they're done. They've finished. As opposed to um, keeping the students all engaged and knowing that Mozart is for everybody and Bach is for everybody and Eric Whitaker is for everybody. And, you know, there's a way to create a choral program where you can expose everybody to that music. And they're you know, that's that's the core of my Choral Clarity blog. Um, and people that don't believe in that or are, don't have a program like that, there's so much they can still get from my blog because I've written a lot of things that you can take separately. And I don't try and beat that down people's heads. Right. Um, but that's the core of my pro uh, of 
what I do here as a teacher and what I write about, it's that I believe in self-selection. I think in at the high school level, you can accept everybody and build a program that's really, really fine, that does great repertoire, that empowers leaders where the mu strongest mu musical leaders um, become role models and they get extra opportunities. They can be in a select group in addition to the core group. Right. Um, well, and, and I, th I yeah. think I just want to like kind of go back to that a yeah. little bit because I was familiar with your blog post about you only have self-selecting choirs and I had read it, but whether it was on my end that I didn't read it close enough and fully understand, um, which would not surprise me based on, but I didn't fully like get it, get it until I heard you talking with Chris yeah. about it. And I still understand. And I think that it's like, you don't necessarily have a kid say like, well, I want to be in this ensemble and I want to be in this ensemble, but it's like self-selecting and as in, as in like, I want to sing, I'm going to be a part of this. Exactly. Is that right? okay. Exactly. So in other words, a freshman soprano or alto is going to be in the treble choir. Yeah. Then they're a sophomore. They're in the treble choir still. Yeah. And by the way, they're a sophomore in a two-year treble choir. They could be a leader. They can be a section leader. They can be the secretary. They can they can be the treasurer or whatever the position is because they are the oldest people in that group. Right. Now they're a junior and they're in the mixed choir, and they're a senior and they're in the mixed choir. Right. And. Um, they, if if they're, it's a first year junior, let's say in the program, a soprano or alto, they join the mixed choir because they're a junior. It's age appropriate, not skilled appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, so what happens is, um, most students are in the program for four years. A few come in over time. Some join sophomore year, junior year, senior year, and so on. But the extra stuff is extra. You have to be in this program to get the extra because part of the extra is being a section leader or being a junior now who has three years experience who can give back to a first year member. Um, you don't have to have a title to be a role model. Um, so they're growing through the program. They're not saying, I want to be in group A. They are in group A. They know I'm a freshman. I'm in this group. I'm a sophomore. I'm in this group. Right. Um, so then after that, there are additional groups, but they're, they're a bonus. Yeah. They're not the core of the program. Yeah. Well, so, and I, I'm curious, I, I want to ask you something because I look back on my experience. So just the last high school that I was at, um, I don't know if that model would have worked well. So I'm going to... I kind of pose to you what yeah, I please. did and I'm curious as to, I think we aligned and had the same sort of thing. But I didn't realize, okay, so I was at a high school, we're in a four by four block, okay. meaning, um, you know, well, they would have to take it for the whole year right. uh, if they sign up for course, but had 90 minute sessions each day. And okay. so I had an auditioned select group that like preceded me, has been around right. for 50 years. And then I did a treble and a bass choir. And what I saw when I did that sort of thing is that every choir is important, right? Like the auditioned group will go off and do um, some out of school things that I like needed to have done on a smaller content. But then I also had extracurricular things for the treble choir and for the bass choir as well. And I did that th that way because sometimes students who just at different work levels and maturity levels for what fit for me. What I was shocked at this last year when I did auditions is I had probably like, in particular, 
no, I had five girls from treble and like one or two guys from the bass choir is that like I fully expected them to want to jump into doing Sandpipers, the name of our audition, right. like select group. They are strong musicians, strong leaders. And they're like, no, I love being in this choir. Mm-hmm. And I was like almost offended at first, right? As I'm processing this, because that right. was not the model with which I grew up in as a singer. Everyone right. wanted to be in the audition group. But then upon further reflection, I was like, well, that's pretty freaking cool. Like they want to be, you know, in a sense, it's a self-selected group to a certain certain extent. So I feel like that is the kind of model that you have, but just in a different context where it's not about like auditioning to be in a group. It's like creating groups that people want to sing in for all four years. I mean, yes. And I think that that's great. Um, Yeah. Totally on the right track. And if that were my program, what right. I what I would be doing is I would have, and again, th- this might not have. Again, I, I'm I don't know how administration works. I don't right. know. How, but yeah, there's just, all different. I'm yeah. giving you a starting point. My yeah. first thing that I would be trying to do is have everybody in the treble or the bass. I'm assuming you say bass, you mean like tenors and basses. Yeah. So everybody would be in one or the other for, let's say, two years. Mm-hmm. Then the junior and senior year, they would all move into the other group. Yeah. So they'd have two years separate or three years Mm -hmm. and probably two because there'd be a little bit more length to it. But the whole point is they all start together. They all continue Mm -hmm. together and it's just, they're moving from A to B. And what, what would that do? And what if a junior says, Hey, I'd like to stay in the group longer. Sure. You can they're not forced to move forward, but they're all invited to move forward. So it's more a four-year growth. Mm-hmm. And, and that wouldn't really change. The only thing it would change is scheduling. And I don't know how scheduling would work, right. but you would have the same system in place. Right. The same amount of students engaged. And everybody would – that treble choir would be amazing because you would have every freshman and every sophomore in that group. Yeah, yeah. Not so, pulling, pulling out the few that are really strong. yeah. Yeah. How do you deal then with kids that like, I'm thinking of, well, I'm thinking of several different instances, like a junior who is not like mature enough to be able to work at a junior and senior level. Right. That's a challenge. I mean, they're generally going to be joining because their peers have gotten them into the group. Mm -hmm. And so who's joining? A friend of a friend. Right. So that friend is accepting responsibility at some level and helping mm. them along. You know, it's positive peer pressure. Yeah. And you can do it. The section leader is helping because that's the section leader's role. Section leader is providing part tapes. They, you know, they have weekly sight reading examples at home that they have to do. But it's, that's, um, that's um, level appropriate. Mm-hmm. So we've got like, the kids have a weekly smart music homework assignment where they have to complete sight reading. Um, so they would be moved to level one, like a junior first year would be level one. They'd be getting the equivalent homework assignment as a right. freshman. Um, I don't give vocal tests. I don't believe in them. I give, I'll give them like memorization tests. Like if when you say the- vocal tests, what do you, how does that classify for in your world? Like, yeah, like like I'm not going to make them learn the part and okay. say you have to sing it and stand up here. You're in an octet or you're, right. you're by yourself. I don't believe in that because some students just can't. Mm-hmm. They're not there yet. And others can do it with doing that with 
doing very little to no work, and I don't want to reward them in that way. They're rewarded by being a section leader. They're you know they're rewarded by giving back. I don't want to reward them with a grade and in in essence penalize somebody else and embarrass right. them. Right. So so for me the kinds of tests I give are labeling notes, um, ryth labeling rhythms, you know the theory type stuff, mm -hmm. um, memorizing the lyrics where they have to write out the lyrics to a song. Yes, um, I love that. We don't do that enough. Like having people write the text yeah. out of the context of the music. Exactly. So anything that that everybody has an equal chance to succeed, regardless of their talent, is where I'm going to grade them. And if it's going to be somehow talent-based, like the smart music homework assignments, at some level there's still some talent involved. I say if they get an 80 or better, they get full credit. And if they get between a 50 and an 80, they get an 80%, an 8 out of 10. So I still pad their grade around yeah. their effort. Um, and the point is, so that junior that's never sung before, it's more that they have more pressure to catch up by learning new traditions that other students have learned. But they're not pressured like, oh, my grade is going to be a 75 because I can't do this. Right. Right. Yeah. I, yes, I love hearing your stories with that because we do, we panel, you said it so well in, in your interview with Chris about like this demoralization or like demotivating the middle class of the, like the choral middle class. Right. Yeah. The choral middle class is the average students, the average singer who on a given year might get pushed up because you don't have enough, you know, say an average tenor, but you don't have enough tenors to put in your select group. Right. But on another year or in another school gets rejected. Right. And those students, just that one little bump will determine the rest of their career of singing. Did you bump them up because you needed an extra tenor? Or did you drop them down because they're really not that good and you have enough tenors? That kid's now no longer going to sing ever again. And that doesn't make sense to me. It just doesn't make sense. Why can't they enter the program and you welcome them to their four-year experience that you hope they continue through? And you have a system in place where they're all, they all can move forward. They're all going to get opportunities. And more and more opportunities will open up as they progress through the program because they open up for juniors and seniors. Right. Right. So I... Yeah, it just really resonates with me hearing your story, especially because that puts a, a greater perspective and a person and an understanding behind it that I think a lot of choral directors, when they hear the overarching theme of what you're talking about, they don't get. So I'm excited for this to be another aspect of what you are all about. Me too. Yeah. Me too. It's, it's I'm just, grateful. It's so, so cool. But for all of these extracurricular things and uh you have a ton of things you're doing outside of your typical classroom day too right well yes and no i mean okay. the, the students are doing a lot right. i don't i don't do that much i do what i need to do to to empower them to be successful i believe that that the more they do the more successful they're going to be the more i do the less successful they're going to be because they're going to rely on me Mm -hmm. So I really try my hardest to figure out how to empower them to be successful. Yeah. So it, I was talking to Chris about this and, you know, he was his, you know, it was st everything started stirring inside of him, you know, and I, I said, look, why can't they rehearse on their own at home? 
And he says, well, you know, it's, it's technically speaking, there should be an adult there. There's, you know, it's a technical thing. It's part of your job. And I said, but, but hold on a second. Why can't 15 students of your choir get together and sing? Yeah. What's stopping them? Yep. So how do you motivate them? It's all about motivation. We need to be motivators, not teachers, because you can get a teacher on YouTube. What is a teacher in 1960? A teacher is a person that gives the information and a student is the person that has to receive it and regurgitate it back, right? And we've tried to shy away from that as much as possible. So if you can go on YouTube and learn how to sing Caro Mio Ben, and the words are there and they're you know, right across the screen, then why do I have to teach that? Now, again, if I, if I require them to go home and learn it off the YouTube video, that is not, I'm not doing my job. Because that's my job. But if I can inspire them to be excited to go home and on their own learn that piece because they, they just said, you know what? I just heard this beautiful piece of music in class. It was introduced to me. I sang it there. And next week, uh, the teacher's going to get ask for volunteers who want to sing the first verse. Yeah. And I want to prove I can do this at home. He kind of hinted that there's a video out there. I'm going to go home and I'm going to listen to that video. Well, all of a sudden you inspired them to do it on their own. And that's what I'm trying to do. How do I create an environment that inspires them to want to do more? Well, I think, yes, but here's the the roadblocks that you keep running into. And I'm just going to, like, is that then you become not need it. Your job changes. You're not the central focus. And a lot of choir directors don't like that. You're right. You're, are you not needed? Well, of course you're needed because my, eight, my eight student runs. St- oh. ah. Okay. Sorry. So you said, are you not needed? Of course you're needed because you're eight student run. Yeah. My eight student run groups would not last one year without a right. teacher like right. myself, right. an empowering teacher being there. Because right. why? Well, I meet with the group leaders. They're all in the choir. They're learning tools in choir. Mm-hmm. I'm pointing things out in the music right. to inspire them. I'm showing them how to run a rehearsal. I'm showing them vocal technique. I'm meeting with them periodically throughout the year to give them coaching. I'm bringing in guests. They're not just doing it on their own. They're right. just they they are they're getting the credit for it which they deserve but i'm giving them i'm their coach i'm right. coaching them and i think that that's an a, we're a coach and a motivator we're not the doer and if we act like the do if we if we act like our job is going to dissipate because we take away the reins we're limiting their growth and we're limiting the growth of our program yeah because nobody thinks, I mean, there's got to be somebody, but nobody in my district thinks that I'm not getting these students to do what they're doing. You know what I mean? They, they understand that it's happening under my watch, under my program. They understand, they hear the choir. The choir sounds amazing. And then they hear the eight student-run groups that are doing it on their own. Right. Uh, they know that it's happening because the group leaders are working together. Right. And pulling right. together. And by the way, they make mistakes and they do things that they get in trouble for. And they're human. They're, first of all, they're kids. Second of all, they're human. And when you put a group of 20 together, no matter what, 
at any age, there's going to be yes. a problem. So, so yeah, they learn from their mistakes. And yes, sometimes I have to take the responsibility for the mistakes that they make. Sometimes they don't like that because when I do, they're not going to be very happy. Right. Um, but the point is I'm empowering them and yeah. our job is to empower them. So when they go on, when they leave us, they are leaders. They learn how to become leaders. They become self-sufficient. And if right. we may, if we're the keeper of the knowledge, then we're, we're, we're pushing them down and that's not yeah. our job to build. It's to build them up. Yeah, absolutely. How did this requires, um, several things, a lot of things. One, the knowledge that this is where it needs to go. And then to the realization that you stepping out of the way is not you, um, like is not, does not dethrone you or does right. not take away who it, we, you know, and you can clearly see it empowers you as a leader, but right. you might, did you always see it that way? Or has this been an evolution and, and growth? It's been an evolution and growth. And it's also been for my sanity. Um, because, you know, I, I, on all these teacher threads that I read, you know, it's like a teacher's job is never done. They work, they work forever and ever and ever, and, and they don't get paid for the extras. And, you know, I, I take a step back and I, I work in a great school district, really, really great district. My, frankly, a lot of the districts around here are really, really fantastic. They really support teachers and they support learning. I have nothing but positive things to say about how, how the district runs as a whole. Um, but they decide how many hours we're supposed to teach. They determine if you, if, if you run a club and you're the director of the musical, they pay you for the amount of hours. You're a level one club or a level two club. That's how it works around here. Huh. They don't, in other words, they don't say you're conducting this, you're directing this musical. Good luck with it. There's a certain mm -hmm. amount of money and there's a certain number of hours. And wow. if there isn't, there's a problem. Because it can't just be un it can't just be unwritten. There's got to be somewhere a contractual expectation. So I believe that they're telling you how many hours that they think you should be doing, and you do that, and you do it as best as you can, and you work hard, and you plan, and you empower. But that's the amount of hours you're supposed to do. And if you believe it should be more hours, you advocate for more hours and you show them why it should be more hours and you work toward that and you explain. And I believe that when you explain and educate that those things will happen over time. But if you just give and give and give, first of all, students don't appreciate that. They don't. They feel like you're wasting their time. Oh, I have to be here again, another late night. And you know, I've got I've got a science test. I have a math test. I can't be here anymore. Why is this teacher doing an all day Saturday rehearsal? Um, so when they make the rehearsals for themselves, it's different than when I make it. So I believe very strongly that we need to know what our hours are. And that doesn't mean I never stay for extra things. I do, right. but, but it's within reason. I really ask myself, is what I'm doing something that is meaningful to me that I think is impactful if I do this event with me there? And if I'm not there, for example, we do lots of interfaith um, ceremonies at local churches and temples. Um, and I, I go to maybe one out of every four or five of them. Yeah, because I have a student that can conduct. I have the ma choir manager, associate manager. They organize it. They conduct. What an amazing experience for them. 
You know what I mean? They're learning from each other. They're learning how to respect each other. And guess what? When it doesn't go well, that's still an amazing experience because they learn why it didn't go well. And that's when I step in and we talk about it and we learn about what it means to empower leaders and why they earn those positions and so on. And so me not being there, it didn't impact the audience. They still got the choir. Didn't impact the students because they got to sing. Who did it impact? Nobody. Yeah. And in turn, it impacted everybody. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. What are some leadership materials that you have gleaned uh, some of these thought processes and that you continue to empower yourself as a leader on? Um, you're saying like, what materials do I personally use? Yeah. Like are there books that yeah. are, you know, things that have helped you along this sure, journey? Sure. I mean, any book on leadership, right. it's not educationally related. I try to read, um, you know, whether it's a Dale Carnegie, Dale Carnegie's book or anything on, I mean, anything on empowerment and, and business, how to be a great executive, all those books. I don't have the names off the top of my head, right. um, but I mean, all the ones that you would want to read if you are an executive are the ones that I like to read. How do you become a leader that empowers the yeah. people, your employees to take ownership? And so if, if I'm reading about, you know, Google, it would be, I'd say, I'd be reading it thinking, how can I apply this to my choir? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you are running a small business. Exactly. I am. I am. And and I have a manager and that manager, student manager can run the group when I'm not there. It runs. If I'm not there, it will still run. It won't run for six months if I'm not there, but it could run for three straight days if I'm not there and everything yeah. will run smoothly and, and things will be taken care of because I have management. I have a team and the other employees respect that team and they work together. So yeah, to me, I think that we do ourselves a disservice to keep, especially in a, a an ensemble setting, um, to keep reading books on choral directing. And that's where my, my blog is really not about choral directing. It's really about leading an ensemble and, and, and leading and empowering people. And I'm using a lot of my writing is not music-based. It's non-music-based and applying it into the musical setting. Right. Right. Well, and I think that's where, and you, you kind of addressed this a little bit on your interview with Chris. And if you want to know, delve into more of this, those that are listening, you, I really encourage you to check out Chris's podcast, Choralosophy. Uh, we, and you know, you've probably heard us talking about it because we've done, uh, by this point, our joint episode will have been released, but is that you get backlash sometimes from a lot. Yeah. I mean, we get backlash in general, right? It's just right. the point of being a leader. People are not going to always like us or respect us or agree with us. And that's right. fine. But I, was shocked to hear some of your stories of the pushback that you've gotten right. from people, people that you've cared about. And that sucks. Yeah, it, it, it does suck, you know, because I really want to make a, a positive impact in my field. Right. Um, but as I said, you know, in, in Chris's podcast, I, I don't, I don't want to play the political game just to make the impact. I want to make the impact because what, what I'm saying has value and I'd like people to think about it. But there are a lot of people that they don't value you unless you do certain things 
to be recognized. And those certain things in my mind, whether it's political, like uh, running for positions um, or political, like your choir was selected to do A, B and C, um, whether it's val whether it's a valid um, honor, like performing at an ACDA convention, which is tremendous um, or an, what I call um an opportunity, not uh-huh. an honor, like performing at Carnegie Hall in most of those um, events. Um, uh, to me, those things are wonderful, but that to me does not give you credence. Because what about the amazing music educators that take everybody and make their group sound great? Even if they don't sound exactly as good as the group that's at the ACDA National Convention. What if they sound 90% as good? Mm-hmm. 90% as good means every music teacher would sit in that audience and be impressed. Mm-hmm. Every parent would be blown away. Right. But the top, top 1% or let's say top 5% of the choral directors across the country can find something that they're not completely happy with, the balance or the tone this of this vowel yeah. or the, yeah exactly right because you have a student who's who's special needs who has um an aid on the side or you have students who are learning disabled or or you have students who are first year singers in the group um or you have a little drone for a split second somewhere in the music because that student didn't remember to cut out on that one line that you rehearsed um and you're not over rehearsing them you're sing- you're teaching them um where is that recognition? And to me, that's lacking. It's not being recognized in ACDA. It's not being recognized in NAFME. What's being recognized are great choir directors with great choirs. Right, right. Man, so I'm sitting here making this connection, right? One of my big passions is more people singing. And that really is a, I see a, a whole of people that have just, oop, Wait, I lost you. We good? Am I back now? Yes. Okay, cool. So I think that I'm like, I'm having major aha moments Uh here, right? Because, well, for years I've seen a gap, and you probably have too, of people that go to high school and sing and then get out into the real world and they don't sing anymore. Right. Or they go to college and they sing and they get out and they don't go sing there anymore. And and then we have these community choirs, which are predominantly like 50 and 60, 70-year-old people. Same with church choirs today too, right? But we have created school cultures that only like magnify and glorify what community singing is not. Right. And then we expect them to go and join community choirs. Yep. When we've said their entire educational career that like that's not the choir you want to be in. Exactly. Well said. And what is is our com- is singing about community or is it about elite singers? Make it make a decision. And the decision has been made. And it's been made by ACDA and it's been made by NAFME and it's been, you know, it's all about the best. And again, I think the best should be featured. I'm not saying they shouldn't. I'm just saying, why are we not featuring self-selected ensembles? Because they don't sound as good because they sound 90% as good. I mean, they sound great. And I keep saying that because it's really important to stress the, the choir setup that I'm talking about leads to an amazing choir that does high-level repertoire that reads exceptionally well. Because 
if you have all of the strongest singers in your group and you gear your music toward them, you still have a great sound. It just takes a little bit more time for the average singers who might be great readers to come in. And then the weakest singers need to be pulled up and they need extra help. So you're not, you're not lowering the caliber of the music you're doing. I'm hitting them with the same level music that I would if I had a select group of 40. Mm-hmm. Instead, I have 80, and I'm doing the same repertoire. We did Leonardo Dreams of His Flying Machine at, at our spring concert, and we had, way, we had way more music than we needed. We had to cut pieces because we had too much music. And yeah. And, the, and all the videos, by the way, are up on YouTube. They're accessible. It's not as if I'm talking about it like we record everything so everybody has them so they can, so they can watch it. So, so my point is just that where, where are we pushing the fact that choir is for everybody and it's a lifelong pursuit? Where is it? Yeah. I'm not seeing it. Yes. Yeah. And oh, and by the way, there are some great community groups that are really, really highly selective. <laughs> Once again, what community group is not highly selective? Almost any community group you look at, you go and see it. You have to sing an aria. You have to yeah. sing this. You have to sight read. So, yeah. Well, you don't know this, but I'm actually, this is one of the things I'm so passionate about. Choir Baton is going to be launching an online course to, if you run into someone that is not in a school setting that goes, I think I want to sing in a choir, but you know, it's been years since I've read music or um, maybe I've never had that training before, right? right? Maybe I would never was taught how to read music, right? right? So many teachers think like, Oh, I do not teach by rote. And then you walk in your rehearsal and you go, <laughs> that's cute. They're holding music, right. but you're teaching by rote, which I've, I've fallen prey to as well. But, um, but it's going to be an online resource for people in that gap to go on and learn. That's like, awesome. how can I efficiently and effectively like catch up to where, and, and there's some other things that I'm involved in that, um, mindset, but, um, it's such a game changer when you think about it within that broader context and, and similar to what you're talking about with the ACDA, it's not recognizing quiet. Like we look at how great they are instead of how far they've come. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, evaluations are wonderful. They're really, really good tools if they're being used for the right reasons. Right. Right. You know, and sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. Yeah. And I think that we, as a as an organization, um, or I shouldn't even say, just as choral directors throughout the country, we're missing the boat. We're not seeing the big picture. And we're instead focused on these tangible prizes. And growth is is really how you measure success in life. You'll measure it on, on just your, your achievement. At least I don't think so. Not for happiness, at least. Yeah. I'm reading this book right now that is like, it's called Radical Candor. And it's by, have you heard of it? No. Okay, so it is by Kim Smith. And she has worked with Sheryl Sandberg at um, Facebook. And she's worked at like all, you know, all the big um, California firms. And I'm reading it and she's talking about, it's like, unbelievable how integrated these things are. And I'm the same. I love to read business books and apply it to the choir world. Mm -hmm. Um, She talks about there's two types of workers 
there's rock stars and there's superstars. Uh-huh. And your superstars are the ones that are like on that fast track for upward tra- trajectory. And there's rock stars that are growing, but just at like a slower, slower pace. And they're they're happy kind of doing what they're doing time up like that is their and at times within our working careers we bounce between the two sometimes sometimes we're in a superstar zone sometimes we're in a rock star zone but within choir like it's just all connecting for me and choir when you have that elite choir like that is oftentimes recognizing your superstar singers right and not like bringing your rock star singers along for the ride. And she talks about in the book wanting to recognize what kind of um, star someone is and where they're at and how you can help them. And and I think that is what you have done so effectively. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. I think that's very cool. That, that's definitely true. And it's and, and going along with that, it's about finding finding what everybody brings to the table. And if you talk about a choir, um, and, and think about a community choir, too, for this matter. Not everybody contributes by being the strongest singer in the group. Yes, you've got the great soloist that contributes. It's like, yep, I can pick this piece because Betty can sing that. Um, but then what about that student that just comes and, and bakes the brownies um, and, and just loves everybody? The, what about the one that's just dedicated to making sure that everybody's clothing fits exactly right? What about, you know, what about the one that sets up the chairs um, for everybody to be there? They, every, everybody matters. Everybody has a role. And once people feel that they matter, they start, they start feeling different and acting different and taking on different roles within there. So they, they're, all, they're all rock stars. They, start as rock, they, they become rock stars in what they do. And they don't have to – they don't fit a cookie cutter – of what an elite singer is. They don't have to be elite singers. They right. have to be dedicated. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and sometimes when you get, I mean, heavens of select choirs that I know that I've done through auditions, sometimes like someone is in that superstar rapid fifth trajectory of like being a, being a strong musician and also bringing other qualities. And like you said, there are places for that. But then in a school setting, especially, they'll get in that elite ensemble and they like are no longer a superstar exactly. anymore. They are like a rock star. And then you have those rock stars that you left behind yep. because they weren't ready or they didn't. And then they become a superstar and then you're misbalanced. And then we hit senioritis time because mm-hmm. now they're seniors. They already got into college. Right. Why do they care? They don't care. Right. And and so it's a cycle of, of you tell them they're great it's one thing to tell them that they're great. You tell everybody they're great at what they do. You know, I try and build people up for the truth of what they, what their strengths are. But when you separate them and you tell 20 students that they're great and everybody else that they're not great, those 20 students think they could do no wrong. Uh, and they stop being great because they don't really value what it means to be great. Right. If that makes sense. I use the word great, yeah. but just for the... No, 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 no. I understand totally what you're saying. Um, Yeah. Wow. Adam, I am just so grateful to you for coming on today and answering my questions and and us engaging in this discourse to better understand because I, 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 I didn't really even expect for us to talk this much about that because it's kind of what you're known for. And I wanted to unpack, unearth more, but it's helped me understand 
so much of about that prin principle that I think other people will benefit from as well. And it corresponds with exactly the mindset that like everybody can sing. Yeah. We need more people singing and we, by getting more people to sing is changing on how we look. Yeah. And assign our ensemble. Completely. Let me leave, let, let me say one more thing about this that I yeah. haven't mentioned anywhere else. And there's a great article by um, John Philip Sousa. I guess the turn of the century, the 1900s, late 1800s, maybe it was when the gramophone was invented. Okay. And he wrote down his fear of this instrument changing music from it being an active um, pursuit for everybody to becoming a passive pursuit because people would go and and they would sing, but now they are hearing the same recording over and over again. They're not going to attend live music. They're not going to see it as an active thing. It's going to be perfection because it's going to be recorded till it's right. People are, are going to want to hear the same songs over and over again because they heard them on repeat. Whereas back then people would go to hear an opening because they've never heard it before. Um, so it all started to change at that point in time. And it's just continually changing into this elite mentality because listen to recordings, whether any, anything, if you listen to a choir recording, it's been edited most of the time, listen to acapella, it's heavily edited. Um, so then your group can't sound like that. So you get as close as you can with the best singers you can. And you're frustrated when your group doesn't sound like that and mix it up with the ACTA or NAFME or any of those things. And your group can't sound like that. You're, you're frustrated. And so it's all this, this whole concept of it not being for everyone. And I believe there's a way to make it for everyone and make it great. And provide excellent repertoire and high level experiences and great readers. I believe everybody can do that. That doesn't mean everybody's going to be on Broadway, but it's going to provide the opportunity for the kid that wants to be on Broadway. That's talented enough to get there, but they're going to also learn how to give back and get the average singers and the weaker singers to also excel and pursue a lifelong love of music where they will be singing and they will be coming to choir concerts and they will be going to Broadway shows or opera or whatever it is that, that their pursuit is. It could be jazz. It can be anything. Um, right. That's our goal. That's really our goal is to keep them active, actively singing and actively in the audience. Yeah. Oh. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from the South. So, you know, I have to like run aisles and wave a hanky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, Adam, I hope this is just the beginning of a newfound friendship yeah, and sure. uh, continuing to talk about all of these things because I have just learned so much by looking at your blog and I'm always inspired when I see people putting content out into the world of choral music. I think it's really just the beginning. Um, but this conversation has been awesome and I cannot wait to share it with our choir baton community. Well, thank you for having me. And I hope we can find different ways to collaborate and yes. I do more things in the future together. Absolutely. So if people want to find you first and foremost, choral clarity blog or yeah. choral clarity.com, yeah. right? And you have a Facebook group? Uh, yeah, we have a Coral Clarity uh, community, Facebook community. And the the difference, because there are a lot of great communities out there. The I'm a choir, uh, choir director um, is one of them. There are a whole bunch of great ones. What makes this different is, number one, I moderate it. It's a positive 
environment. People are asking not questions like, hey, I'm looking for a song. I mean, there's a little of that, but not to it. I'm looking for a song for my winter concert. This is more about inspiration. It's more about really continuing the dialogue of, of the blog, um, deeper questions, um, and getting people to engage in that way. And we keep it positive. We keep it supportive. And, um, I, and it's smaller. It's about 900 people right now and growing. It's growing, you know, probably 10 people a day. Um, it's only less than a year old. But the whole p- purpose is to give meaning to why we do what we do, not to focus on what not to focus on the what's my song going to be for this or I have an annoying parent that that said this. I don't that stuff to me is those are symptoms. They're not the problem. The problem is what's your philosophy? What's the approach you're taking in the classroom? What do you hope your students are accomplishing? How are you trying to inspire them? What do you want your student to say about the program when they came out after 4 years? These are the things I want the dialogue to be about. Not, so if I hear a complaint, not a complaint, but, you know, that what would you do if I had this, if you had this situation? To me, I'm saying, well, let's take a step back. Why is this happening? Let's focus right. on the why and how can we change the culture? Um, so if anybody who's interested, I would love for them to um, to engage in, in a Coral Clarity community on Facebook. Also, just my, my personal website, which is adampeltritz.com, it's linked right into Coral Clarity. It's just my bio, and if you want to contact me, maybe some recordings I have, workshops that I give, um, yeah. online training, that kind of stuff. Yeah. There. Awesome, awesome. And I, are you on Instagram at all? I think so. I think so. Okay. There's probably more pictures of me that my wife has put up. Okay. Uh, with my baby, we have a, a two week old, almost three week old now. And Congratulations! Thank you, and and a four almost four year old. So, wow. um, yeah. So we have a lot of pictures. Um, they're mostly not choir related, but I love it. That's hey, it's a heart. But yeah, definitely come join me on there. I think on Twitter, my my uh, coral blogs come out every once in a while. I don't know how they somehow. Get, get there, but I, I'm not too actively on Twitter. Okay, cool. Well, you know, Choir Baton started as an Instagram takeover account, uh-huh. a way for people to, like, you hold the Choir Baton for the day or a couple days and, and show us inside of your world, uh-huh. and it's all about the imperfections and, like, the real life, and so hopefully we'll be able to have you host a Choir Baton takeover this year. Cool. That's awesome. That sounds like fun. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> We'd love it. Thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. Special thanks again to Adam for this awesome interview and his insight into the work he's not only doing in his classroom, but especially on his blog, Coral Clarity. I want to encourage you to go there and check out Coral Clarity if you have not. And if you have, well, still go and and check him out there. My name is Beth Philemon, and I am so honored to be your host with the Choir Baton podcast. Just a couple reminders as we close out this week's episode. Go and check us out on Instagram. See what takeovers are going on there. It is at Choir Baton. Also, know that the Choir Baton website is going through a bit of a transition as we head towards being able to offer you online courses and various things. Our first one is going to be on music literacy so be following us on facebook and instagram as to when that is going to be released 
The goal of Choir Baton is to support this choir community in hopes that we can get more people singing. And that ultimately starts with you and your help for this mission. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for supporting Choir Baton and choir in general. Until next time.